0: Well, this is a missions sermon. And in fact, the next three weeks are missions sermons because we come to a section of Revelation that is a missions text. Now, as I said that, I suspect that there were a handful of you whose ears perked up in anticipation because your heart already beats to the rhythm of missions. Your soul already thrills to the call to go and make known the saving power of Christ among the nations. When Mike was talking about going and declaring the glories of Christ, that Jesus may be worshipped and that the nations may be glad, your heart said yes and amen. You already know what it is to live the life of a debtor. Like the Apostle Paul who said, I am under obligation literally i am a debtor both to greeks and to barbarians both to the wise and to the foolish so i am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in rome a passage you've read a number of times before from romans chapter one but let me ask you this question to whom is paul in debt I think the natural response is to say, well, he's in debt to God for the gift of his grace. God has bestowed on him the gift of salvation and now Paul feels this debt of gratitude to God and therefore he is expending his life trying to pay back, as it were, the gift that he had received. And I would say to you, that is most certainly not what Paul says nor what he means that would turn his entire gospel, in fact, all that he spends the next 16 chapters of Romans trying to establish, it would turn that entire thing on its head. And it's not what he says in this verse. You cannot be in debt to grace. It is impossible. Grace is, by its very definition, free and unmerited. In fact, if you try to pay God back, If you try to recompense God for the gift of His grace, then grace has ceased to be grace. The gift is rendered null and void and you are back under law and under the condemnation for your sins. No, Paul is not a debtor to God. Paul is a beneficiary of God. He is an heir of God. He is a son of God. What Paul says in this verse is that he is a debtor to Greeks and to barbarians. To the wise and to the foolish. Paul, in other words, is not a debtor to God. He is a debtor to people. He is a debtor to the nations. Why? Why does Paul feel himself to be in the nation's debt? The answer is that Paul, the self-proclaimed chief of sinners... The least deserving of God's mercy received mercy. And so just as a cancer patient who stumbles upon the cure has a moral obligation to share that cure with other patients inflicted with cancer, and just as a man on a sinking ship who finds a lifeboat has a moral obligation to the others on that sinking ship to show them the way to the lifeboat. So Paul felt a deep indebtedness to other sinners. To all other sinners, to share the gospel of salvation, the good news of the forgiveness of sins and of everlasting life in Christ to all who, like Him, were dying of the disease of sin and were drowning in the gulf of God's wrath. And some of you, a handful of you, perhaps, feel that deep indebtedness of which Paul speaks. And that's why a sermon on missions arrests your attention because it matches the rhythm of your heart. But that is not true of most of us. If we are honest, we, and I will include myself in this number, we do not feel the same sense of indebtedness. We don't feel... The constraint of Christ's love where in 2 Corinthians 5.14 Paul says the love of Christ constrains us. It compels us. That yearning to rescue the perishing from the sea of wrath and to snatch them as it were out of the fire. That's why we find ourselves so ambivalent with regard to evangelism and missions. Now don't get me wrong, we're for it. In word and in tongue, perhaps, but not in deed and in truth. We are glad when it gets done. We are glad when evangelists evangelize and when missionaries go out on mission and when people are saved. But it's not our heartbeat. It's not the pulse of our soul. It's not the rhythm of our heart. Our hearts beat to another rhythm. The rhythm of our jobs, the rhythm of our families, the rhythm of our hobbies. That's what gets us up in the morning. To us, a sermon on missions is rather like, I tried to think of an illustration and this is what came to me. It's rather like a Thomas Kincaid print in the window of a shopping mall. A dime a dozen. You've seen them a hundred times on greeting cards and Christmas cards and everywhere else. And you may stop by the window and and admire for a moment the quaint country scene before your eyes, right? The small cottage beside a lake against the backdrop of, of mountains. But soon, your eyes glaze over, your stomachs rumble, and so you continue your journey on towards the food court or to Sunday afternoon lunch. In the final analysis, we are bored with the topic of missions because our minds are consumed with more pressing concerns. And so my aim this morning is is not to induce guilt over what I perceive to be our lackluster passion for evangelism and missions. Guilt is a terrible motivator. It is perhaps effective in the short term, but it is destructive in the long term. And in the New Covenant, we do not live by guilt. We live by grace. So my aim is not to make you or me feel guilty this morning. My aim in this message is to place the cardiac monitor of the Bible upon our hearts so that we may diagnose its rhythm. Does it beat in time with Christ, or do we suffer from spiritual arrhythmia? Then, I want to use, over the next three weeks, the defibrillator of the gospel to shock your heart to beat in pace with God's global purpose for His church. My prayer is that we would look back over these three weeks for years into the future and see what God was doing. He was taking the paddles, He was saying clear, and and a church came alive. That's what I've prayed for, that's what I need, because my, I'm not talking about you, unless I am, my heart is so weak and irregular, and I'm so tired of being spiritually tired. I'm so tired of being apathetic towards the mission of the church, which is the purpose for which Christ left his redeemed on this earth. I'm so tired of treating this book like it's a puzzle to be figured out and worked through rather than as a gospel to be proclaimed far and wide. I am tired of being silent on the streets of my neighborhood, and I am tired because my heart is beating out of rhythm. And I wonder if you're tired too. So pray with me that God over these next three weeks would shock us with His Word so that we could feel the health and the vitality of a heart beating in sync with its Creator and Redeemer pray with me. What we have in Revelation chapters 10 and 11 is a glorious vision of the purpose of the church in these last days. It pictures the church as the prophets of God, testifying with power to the word of Christ before an often hostile world. And so my earnest desire over the next three weeks is that this vision of the church, given to John between the 6th and the 7th trumpets, would become the vision of this church, 1st Baptist Nixa, that we would become, or that we would come to see ourselves, rather, as prophets. Prayerfully speaking the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit in a variety of contexts. In our homes and in our neighborhoods, at our jobs and at the gyms in hospitals and in jails and in Cuba and in Nicaragua and in places we haven't even thought of going yet. To the very nations of the world. Now let me explain how I get there from Revelation chapter 10. It begins in Numbers chapter 11. In Numbers chapter 11, when the 70 elders were appointed to aid Moses in the administration of the nation of Israel, God placed His Spirit upon them, and they began to prophesy. But interestingly, and a little inexplicably, the Spirit also rests upon two men who were not numbered among the 70, and they began to prophesy as well, and and a young man saw this happen and he ran to Moses and he told him what happened and Joshua overheard it and Joshua said to Moses, My Lord Moses, stop them. Stop them from prophesying. And Moses said something really interesting in Numbers eleven twenty nine. Moses said to Joshua, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put His Spirit on all of them. In the new covenant, Moses' desire has come true. For at Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, the church is gathered in one place. And they hear the sound of a mighty rushing wind. And the Holy Spirit falls upon them in tongues of fire. And they begin to declare the mighty works of God in the languages of the nations. And Peter then stands up in the midst of the gathered crowd of thousands and he declares that in these last days, God will pour out His Spirit upon all flesh with the result that the sons and daughters of God will prophesy. He then demonstrates... Quoting from Joel chapter 2, 28-32, to 32, and applying it to what is going, around, going on right around him in their day, he then demonstrates that Joel's promise has come to fulfillment. And he demonstrates what it means. What does it mean that the sons and daughters of God shall prophesy? It means what the church was doing declaring the mighty works of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. It means what Peter then proceeded to do which was to stand up in their midst and testify powerfully to the death and resurrection of Christ before the crowds in Jerusalem. That's the fulfillment of Joel's promise that in the last days God would pour out His Spirit upon all flesh and all the sons and daughters of God would prophesy. Now, You're going to hear me talk about prophecy a lot in the next three weeks. And a little disclaimer, if you're kind of in on the debates a little bit between continuationism and cessationism, I'm just going to tell you I'm not going there now. I like to go there, but this isn't the place. So I'm not, in these weeks, I'm not talking about the more restrictive, charismatic gift of prophecy that is mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament in places like Romans 12.6 and 1 Corinthians 12. 28. That is a topic for another day. But what does seem clear to me this morning is that Peter saw the events of Pentecost when the gathered church, having all been filled with the Holy Spirit, were declaring the mighty works of God. Peter saw that to be the fulfillment of Joel's new covenant promise and the fulfillment of Moses' desire. Peter, in other words, conceived of the new covenant church as an assembly of, of prophets, filled with the Holy Spirit, testifying powerfully to the nations of the mighty works of God in Christ. And I want Peter's vision for missions to be our vision. I want that to be our vision for evangelism and missions that captures the heart of First Baptist Nixa. These are the last days, and as God has promised, He has poured out His Spirit upon all His church, and His sons and daughters shall prophesy. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Would that all of the Lord's people would be prophets. Would that God would raise up prophets in our midst, filled with faith and with the power of the Holy Spirit and boldly speaking the word of God wherever they go. Why not you? Why not you? Will you pray with me? That God would stir in your hearts through these messages? Why not you? Are you a son or daughter of God? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. A word which is used interchangeably in the book of Revelation with the word prophets. As I see it this morning, I have two tasks before me. First, I need to explain Revelation 10 and show why I believe that it points to the prophetic role of the church in these last days. And then, secondly, I need to draw out some application. I'm going to give you four truths that you must take to heart if you're going to fulfill this prophetic role in your own life. So the best approach to Revelation 10, I think, is probably just to deal with it as it comes, a verse at a time. So that's what we're going to do. But before we begin, I want to say something about its setting between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. You will remember that in the vision of the seven seals, there was also a gap. And the seven seals and the seven trumpets are parallel. They are both describing God's judgments in these last days between the first and the second comings of Christ. Right? We've, already, we've already mentioned this repetitive, cyclical cycle of the visions of Revelation like a diamond. We, okay, We're not going to rehearse those arguments here. But I do want you to notice that between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, there were were an interlude of two visions, both answering the question raised in 6.17. Namely, who can stand in the day of God's wrath? Okay, That question is raised in the sixth seal, and then there's an interlude in Revelation 7 of two visions, both of which answer that question. The answer is... The sealed and sanctified saints can stand when the day of judgment comes. All right. Well, like, likewise, in this new parallel vision of the seven trumpets, there is an interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpets. Again, there are two visions, and again, both deal with the church. This time answering another question, namely, what role does the church play in these last days as God is pouring out His judgments upon the earth? What is our task? So the first interlude, Revelation 7 answered, how can we stand? Well, we can stand because we're sealed and we're sanctified by the blood of the Lamb. This interlude in Revelation 10 and 11 answers the question, what do we do? What is our role? And the answer is, God has left you on this earth to speak the word of God powerfully, in the power, prayerfully, in the power of the Holy Spirit, wherever you go. That's the point of the next three weeks. So, after the description of the sixth trumpet judgment, which you'll remember I take to mean the demonic deception that will be unleashed at the end of the age, which leads to that mass apostasy and rebellion that results in the spiritual death of of a multitude. And after the sad summary at the end of chapter 9, that the rest of mankind who were not victims of these plagues did not see them as warnings from God, they did not repent from their sins so as to be saved. But before the seventh trumpet sounds and the kingdom of this world is decisively destroyed at the coming of Christ, John is just suddenly whisked away into another vision. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with rainbow over his head, and his face like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire, and he had a little scroll open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring, and when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. The background for this is Daniel chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, where Daniel saw the vision of what he calls a man, a heavenly man, whose description is almost identical to John's description of this mighty angel in Revelation chapter 10. That heavenly man in Daniel 10 was so glorious that many interpreters conclude that it is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Now, I don't think that's the case in Daniel 10 because the man we later find out in the chapter is limited in his power and he needs Michael to come and to help him accomplish his mission and the Lord Jesus is not limited in his sovereign power. But at any rate the debate rages in Revelation chapter 10 for the same reason. All right? So who is this mighty angel who descends out of heaven with the scroll in his hand many say that it's the lord jesus and i have to admit that the description in these verses seem to point in that direction for instance he descends in a cloud like jesus in revelation 1:7 he has a rainbow over or surrounding his head like him who sits on the throne in revelation 4:3 his face shines like the sun like jesus in revelation 1, six and on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, 2. He holds a scroll in his hand like Jesus, the Lamb, in Revelation 5, 7, who took the scroll and broke its seven seals. And his voice sounds like a lion roaring, like the lion of the tribe of Judah in Revelation 5, 5. Furthermore, he stands with his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, which symbolizes or could symbolize sovereign power over creation. It looks like Jesus, but I don't think it is, because on the other hand, it could simply be a supremely glorious angel whose appearance reflects the glory of God and of his Christ because he has been in their presence in heaven. In Revelation, Jesus never appears as an angel, and the word angel always refers to a created being. But the truth of the matter is is that you'll probably interpret the mighty angel of revelation 10 in the same way that you interpret the heavenly man of Daniel chapter 10. But whichever you choose, whichever direction you choose to go, whether it's a mighty angel or whether it's Jesus himself makes little difference to our understanding of this passage. I'll let you know, I think it's an angelic being, glorious in appearance because it's been in the presence of the glorious one. G.K. Beale has an interesting and intriguing opinion that this mighty angel of Revelation 10 is the angel of the Lord from the Old Testament. A figure who quite clearly possesses divine attributes and is identified as uh, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. In other words, G.K. Beale believes that this mighty angel is Jesus, but Jesus appearing as the angel of the Lord... ...from the book of Exodus. And he's doing this because John is making a connection with the book of Exodus. For instance, John says that he's wrapped in a cloud and his legs are like pillars of fire. and A cloud and pillars of fire. Does that sound familiar? Well, that's how God manifested his presence among his people in the wilderness. And John will see the church pictured as a people in the wilderness, particularly in Revelation chapter 12. So according to Beale, the point of the reference here to God's presence with Israel in the wilderness is that the same divine presence protects and guides the faithful witnesses of the new Israel in the wilderness of this world, as the following chapters reveal. Which is an interesting thought, but I don't think he's right. I think that this is indeed an angel, a mighty angel, a glorious angel, but an angel nonetheless. How then are we to understand the little scroll that's in his hand what's that is it the same scroll that jesus took in chapter five and proceeded to break its seals and unleash god's judgments upon the world a lot of people say yes because of the links between revelation 10 and revelation 5 others say no because revelation 10 is very careful to say that it's a little scroll says it three times rather than simply a scroll as in Revelation 5 and the fact that it's open instead of closed and sealed like it was in Revelation 5. I think that this is the same scroll or at least a part of the same scroll because of the the strong links verbally with Revelation chapter 5 and the fact that both 5 and 10 find their background in Ezekiel 2 and 3 as we'll see in a moment. So think back to the scroll of Revelation chapter 5. I think it's the same scroll, or at least a part of it here in Revelation 10. That was the scroll of destiny, right? In there was written the destiny of the world, and Jesus, the Lamb, by taking it and breaking its seals, He is unfolding or unleashing the destiny of the world. Well, this is a little scroll. It's a part of the scroll of destiny because it in particular pertains to the destiny of the church in these last days as a larger part of the whole destiny of the world. Revelation 10 and 11 unveils the destiny of the church in these last days, which is just a small part of the whole destiny of the world, the whole scroll. So it's a little scroll as opposed to a whole scroll, and it is open because Jesus has already broken the seals and he's unfolded it. It's open because he wants us to know what's in it, namely the contents of 10 and 11. Verse 4, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. All right, so this enormous angelic figure plants his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he begins to speak, and his, his voice is like the roaring of a lion, and when he speaks, seven thunders from heaven speak back. The seven thunders are probably symbolic of the voice of God. The voice of God is also often spoken like of in the form of thunder, like in Psalm 29. Thunder is a symbol of divine judgment, and so what it appears is that John hears the revelation of another Sevenfold series of judgments like the seals and the trumpets and the bowls of wrath to come. And John understands what they say because he's about, he gets his pen out and he's about to write it down until he hears a voice from heaven saying, Stop. Do not write it down, but rather seal it up. Which I would say is a reminder that while God has made known to us much of His sovereign will, He has not made known to us everything. He's made known to us much of the scroll of destiny, but He retains some knowledge for Himself alone. He has not told us everything there is to know about this age or the age to come, only what we need to know to faithfully persevere and faithfully bear witness to His word. which again has an Old Testament background. It comes in Daniel twelve seven, where Daniel also sees an angel clothed in linen who is above the waters of the stream, and he also raised his right hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. That's the same message that this angel brings. When the seventh trumpet sounds, and it will sound in 11.15, when the seventh trumpet sounds, the mystery of God will be fulfilled. Christ will return, history will be finished, the elect will be gathered to Christ, the dead will be raised, the judgment will come, and God has announced this ahead of time to His servants, the prophets. All right, stick that last phrase, His servants, the prophets, stick that in your back pocket, we're going to come back to that. Verse 8. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, and I told him to give me that little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel, and I ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter, and I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. This is a retelling of what transpired in Ezekiel chapters 2 and 3. When Ezekiel was called and commissioned by God to be his prophet, and Ezekiel was given a scroll that contained words of judgment and lamentation and woe, And he was told to eat the scroll, and when he did, it tasted to him sweet as honey. And John's visionary experience is nearly identical, except that John says that when he had eaten the scroll, though it tasted like honey in his mouth, it turned his stomach bitter. So what does all this mean? That's verses 1 to 11. What does all of this mean, and how does it happen, or how does it work together with you and missions? What's the connection? What we have in Revelation chapter 10 is a graphic depiction of the opening verses of Revelation. And I want you to turn there with me. Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The book of Revelation opens with these words. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show to His servants... So in Revelation 1, 1 to 1-3, you see this chain of revelation stretching from God the Father to His servants. That's you. You are the servants that this revelation is intended for. And the chain has five links coming from the Father all on the way down. And I want you to see these. Number one, first link. God the Father gave this prophecy to Jesus Christ. Do you see that in Revelation 1:1? He gave this prophecy to Jesus Christ. That was depicted in Revelation chapter 5 when the lamb took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sits on the throne, namely the Father. Okay? Number 2. Jesus sent his angel I think this is depicted by the mighty angel that comes from heaven down to, number three, his servant John. So the father to the son, the son to the angel, the angel to John. And we see that at the end of chapter 10, when John then walks up to the angel and takes the little scroll out of his right hand. Well then... John bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ even to all that he saw by writing it down, closing it up, and sending it to the churches. That's the fourth link in the chain. John to the churches. But there's a fifth link. The churches who are identified in 1-1 as the servants of God and are identified in 10.7 as his servants, the prophets, make known this prophecy according to verse 3 by reading it aloud. Blessed is he who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And then he turns right around and says, And blessed is the one who hears it when it is read aloud and keeps it. So there's a fifth link in this chain, namely from the churches to the nations. The churches speak the words of this prophecy to the nations and when the nations hear it and receive it and keep it, they come underneath the blessing of God. Five links in the chain of revelation from the Father to the nations. God the Father to His Son, the Son to the angel, the angel to John, John to the churches and the churches to the world. I think that's exactly what is pictured in Revelation 10 and 11. In Revelation 10, we see the angel descending from heaven, from Christ, who had already gone and taken the scroll from the Father. And he comes and gives this scroll, this prophecy is what Revelation 1-3 calls it. He gives this scroll to John, who then writes it down and gives it to the church. And that's what we're reading and studying today. And in Revelation 11, although you're going to have to take my word for it until next week, we see the church pictured as two prophets who prophesy before a hostile world. So before the last trumpet sounds, that's why this vision is here between 6 and 7, Before the last trumpet sounds, and the mystery is fulfilled, and the end comes, when history is consummated, and the final judgment unveils, and it's everlastingly too late for men to repent, God has called and commissioned His church to be prophets in these last days, to prayerfully speak the Word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit to the church and to the nations, in our homes and in our jobs, to our friends and to our families, God has called us to be prophets, and prophets speak the words of the prophecy, which is exactly what God calls this book in Revelation 1, 3, and other places, in order that men may hear it, heed it, and be blessed. You see it? There's a chain of five links stretching from the throne of God through you and to the nations of the world. So I come back to the first question. What about you? Why not you? Will you take up the prophet's mantle and begin speaking the word of God before the last trumpet sounds, the end comes and it is too late for the nations of the world and for your loved ones? Will you be the prophet to your home? What does that mean? It means bringing them the word of God and bringing it to bear upon your children and what they're going through. And bringing it to bear upon your spouse and what they're going through. And bringing it to bear upon your family. It is bringing the words of the prophecy which you received from heaven to them. Will you be the prophet to your home? Men, we must be. Will you be the prophet to your workplace? Speaking the word of God prayerfully in the power of the Holy Spirit to your co-workers who ask you to give an account for the hope that you have, yet with gentleness and reverence. Will you be the prophet of God to your street, telling of the mighty works of God to your neighbors who you see every day? If you would, then you must know four truths that I want to draw out of Revelation 10 and give to you. Because prophets have to know four things. And this is how we'll close. Number one, you must, the word must be believed. The word must be believed. If you would prophesy with confidence in the power of the Holy Spirit, you must be utterly convinced that the words of this prophecy, God's words, not mine, the words of this prophecy come from the throne. That they are therefore infallible, inerrant, and inspired of the Holy Spirit and thereby bear God's divine authority. You mu- that question must be settled in your mind before you will be able to speak with any power whatsoever. In other words, you must believe that there are no weak links in that chain of revelation. God gave this revelation to his son. His son gave it to his angel. His angel came down from heaven bearing a scroll in his hand. And gave it to the apostle John. Who did not, by the way, add nor take away from the book of this prophecy. Which is what he says in Revelation 22:18 18 and 19. But rather wrote it down faithfully and transmitted it to us, the church. There are no weak links in the chain of revelation. And you have to know that. If you're going to speak with power. This word which I hold in my hand comes from God and is perfect. And the world needs it. Secondly, the word must be eaten. If you would prophesy with confidence in the power of the Holy Spirit, the word must not be outside of you but in you, It must become part of you, which is why God commanded Ezekiel to eat the scroll and to fill his stomach with it. It's why the angel instructed John to eat the scroll that was given to him. A prophet is not a detached, apathetic, objective messenger. He's not like a mail carrier who just drops off letters and says, Here you go, but doesn't care about what's inside the envelope. A prophet knows the message, feels the message, has fed on the message such that it has become a part of him. A prophet says with Jeremiah, your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart for I am called by your name. A prophet knows what it is to be under the prophetic burden such that Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 20 in verse 9: if I say, I will not mention him, and I will not speak anymore in his name, I'll just I'll just go day by day with my family, and I'll go to work and I'll leave work and I'll go to my hobbies and 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 I'm not gonna speak in his name. There is in my heart burning as it were a fire shut up in my bones, and I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. And that doesn't happen until you eat this word. It's got to be in you before it will burn in you and explode out of you. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the reason why we're not speaking is because we're not eating. If you would be a prophet, you must feed on the word. Third, you must know that the word is bittersweet. And if you would be a prophet, you must embrace this fact. The scroll which Ezekiel ate was filled with words of lamentation and mourning and woe. The scroll that John tasted was sweet as honey, but then turned his stomach bitter. The words of this prophecy taste sweet as honey because it is truth and it is grace and it is life to those who hear. But it also embitters the stomach of the messenger. It embitters the stomach because it is a word of judgment. And of lamentation and of mourning and of woe to those who will not hear. When you feed upon this word, there will be times when you feel as if you are eating honey from the honeycomb. Such freedom from sin and guilt and shame, such grace, such mercy, such righteousness, such wisdom is found in the words of this prophecy and you'll feel as if you're eating sugar. But, there will be times when you feed on this word and you weep in mourning and tremble in fear. Such judgment Such wrath, such darkness, but the prophet speaks the sweet and the bitter. For he dare not do other than to speak the whole counsel of God. Which is exactly why John closes Revelation with these words. I warn everyone, be warned, 1st Baptist Nixa. I warn everyone. Who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them. God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy. God will take away his share in the tree of life. And in the holy city which are described in this book. You don't monkey around with the prophecy the world your family your friends your kids your spouse your coworkers your neighbors the nations they need the whole counsel of god the sweet and the bitter alike finally the word must be proclaimed you must know your calling and it shall be god declares That I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Or as John was told in verse 11. You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Beloved that is why you have been given a book. And have been left upon this earth. That's it. You must prophesy. You must prayerfully speak the words of this book in the power of the Holy Spirit in the context in which God providentially places you. You must speak the bitter truth word far and wide. You must prophesy. So God grant us to be faithful to this task and to embrace over the next three weeks this comprehensive vision of the church as the prophets of God in these last days. God grant us utterance and forbid that we would be silent any longer. For we don't have long. We only have until the last trumpet sounds.